This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, remember like way back when we started podcasting, we had Wayne Jernell on and he told us to just disclose all our politics. Yes. And indoctrinate our students, right? I think that's what I remember. <laughs> it's been a while since I've listened, but I remember him saying, make them just like you. Is that what that you remember? Not what he was saying. <laughs> we we was uh, talking about political disclosure and the importance of uh, kind of showing where your ideas come from, and also like showing your openness to like be challenged and your ability to like right to like hold different ideas and kind of like show your thought process to, as a model. Right? Am I? Would am I remember? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. It, it makes sense, right? I mean, like our, our who we are, our identities, the b- beliefs we have about the world, the reasons we want to teach, right? Those are going to be impacted by what we do in our classroom. And so the idea of, you know, not saying, hey, students, like this is who I'm voting for today, but like allowing right. students to know that you care about things in the world. And the, but yeah, that you're you are willing to engage and learn alongside them. And so this was specifically about politics. We're talking about politics and uh, we're ramping up to the 2016 election. And I thought a lot about what he said and I really, I took his advice to heart. And so depending on my classes, like I did disclose my, my political preference, not to every single class. It was only when I felt like I had already established a rapport with my students that like we had like a good relationship. I did not do it with every class. And I thought that it went well making, you know, I was doing my best to make sure that like, I wasn't just saying like, if you don't believe like me, you know, you're going to get an F, but I am not going to lie to you. As we got closer to the 2020 election, I definitely did not do that. I think things got so polarized that I absolutely backed down from that. Mostly, I don't know. I don't want to say fear, but I just, I didn't, it was such a polarized state with the election. I just, I didn't, and I think we're also remote, but even last year, I, I don't yeah. think I would have felt comfortable doing it. Was it, were you worried about students more so? Or were you worried about parents, community members, students recording t- conversations in your classes? What was it that, that was sitting in your head that caused you not to want to share more with your students? It was not being recorded. It was, it was so polarizing. I didn't want if the, you know, I said something. I feel like everything was very much either or you're either with us or you're against us. And I didn't want to put myself in a situation where my students would feel like I was against them. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. And I didn't think Mm -hmm. that doing it would make my students feel comfortable. So I pulled back and I don't know if it was the right thing to do. And I'm not going to lie. Like we did less coverage and it might've been as a result, but it was also, I feel a little bit like students felt a lot more uncomfortable with this particular election. Yeah, and that that feels unfortunate, right? But but you know, talking about who you are and and discussing issues whether they're controversial or part of your identity, right, that you want or don't want to share, you know, feels like it's easier to say 
you should disclose that, but I think it's it, it probably takes a lot of why of wisdom to get, to figure out how to go about that. And I'm sure even day to day, it probably felt easier, right? Not to do it. Probably a sense of relief, I would even think. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And I wish that I, I, I wish that I was not that I wish that I was stronger, but I wish that I was able to to manage it a little bit. But I don't know. I don't know, but I did feel very much like a failure at, at different points because of this. Well, and you think, I mean, we also walk into schools, we're both two, you know, white bearded podcasting men. That's right. Um, and walk, walk into spaces. And in a lot of ways, our identities are, are pretty affirmed. We, you know, we, we don't have people usually who are going to dismiss us or, or microaggress us throughout the day, right? Those types of things don't, don't often happen to us. But we've talked in many episodes about teachers who do face that in schools, right? In episode 39, when we had uh, Jean-Viev Mayette on, she, she was a transgender graduate student who just felt unwelcome even doing field experience in schools, which is what an unfortunate you know, situation where when schools can't be safe places for, for everybody. So I, I guess we just need to keep working with people who can help us think through how to go about this and also how to be allies and co-conspirators to those people in our schools who need it. I like the idea of being a co-conspirator in, yeah. in some cases, not like in general, like I don't just want to be a co-conspirator for everything. <laughs> not not like, like a co-conspirator were... of robbing a bank or something. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it was an evil bank. <laughs> no, I, no, this is not an invitation. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I should I should give credit where it's due. That uh, co-conspirator term comes from Bettina Love, who's, who's done a lot of great work and, and talks in her book about, about about abolitionist teaching how she prefers that term. But let's let's bring in somebody who's doing some research on this topic. Uh, and maybe maybe we haven't even said the topic yet. Maybe we're 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 still working our way there. Uh, but has really thought a lot and and published on on you know. The, the types of things teachers and particularly historically marginalized teachers face in schools. So we would love to welcome in to the podcast, Jenny Conrad. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Hey, Jenny Conrad, you're calling from Seattle, correct? That's right. Actually sunny today. Wow. <laughs> I just, the only thing I know about Seattle is that there's fish there. And is that where the vampire stories are with the, uh, with the silvery vampires? Like Twilight, stuff. yeah, that's, that's what I was over thinking. on the um, Olympic Peninsula, Quinault lands. So <laughs> a little farther away from this area of the Salish Sea. Okay, so I do actually don't know much about Seattle at all. Oh yeah, we're uh, if Washington's like shaped like this. That's a like that, right. yeah. We're we're, we're getting it. Yeah, we're the getting a, a, a clenched fist with the with the with the thumb out for the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there another so my, state that's so, just a midden? I know. It's like, <laughs> like a Michigan-Wisconsin thing, I know, but I try to adapt it. So we will we will have Michael Google Seattle after the episode. And, may, and in the meantime, recently, Dr. Conrad, I should say, before we get too much further, congratulations on recently graduating Hello. with your doctorate. Can you tell us about your background in education? Happily. So I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I've been a teacher educator and teaching coach for about six years now um, through Seattle University and the University of Washington. Before that, I worked for eight years as a secondary social studies and English language arts teacher in public schools. And then during that time and before that time, I worked for about 10 years as an experiential educator in informal and outdoor learning settings. 
the term teacher coach sounds really fun. What is, what, what is a teacher coach and, and how can I get one? Work with a teacher education program, I would say, but basically I got to follow new teachers in their placements and support them through the instructional and planning dilemmas that they were having and um, try to offer support as they were developing their professional goals and all the TPA paperwork. Can you talk a little bit just briefly about your your outdoor teaching experience? I feel like during a, the pandemic, that which should be very valuable, right? Like going outside where ventilation is uh, endless ventilation is a lot safer environment. Um, what what wisdom can you share about about teaching outdoors? Gosh, well, just I think I was very fortunate um, after college to work with an environmental justice organization. And that really helped me remember that like, as much as I love conservation spaces and like mountains and wilderness areas, there's also environment everywhere. Like nature is where we live, work, play and pray. And so the the spaces in our backyards, just outside our doors, um, those are equally full of learning opportunities as far off destinations. So I think just being, for me being outside, helps me be present and helps me show up um, and helps me build relationships and gratitude in ways that I think um, are harder when I'm just inside helps to keep me centered. So I'm trying to think of wisdom, but I was very wise already. (laughs) Well, I think maybe just to, to like, I love getting to go out with my kiddo and just explore any place and be together and see what she notices and help me learn through, her fresh eyes and just trying to like really zone in on what's right in front of us that we might otherwise overlook. Yeah. I love that. And I, you know, with, with so many screens all around us these days, right. I think just literally this, the act of walking away from them and being in a different place can, can be calming in and of itself, right. Allow you to kind of reconnect. And I think, like you said, kind of be present in in where you're at and and how you're doing and everything. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a way to understand the the knowledges and the relationships that have been there since time immemorial. I know for me, living in Seattle on Coast Salish lands, getting to learn who the native plants are and who the native animals are and getting to understand these landscapes as teachers too. That's been a really lovely ongoing learning journey. Well, so you, that was just bonus bonus information we all got right there. But the the primary reason we had you on today is because you have not only just got your doctorate, but you have already publishing in Theory and Research and Social Education, which is no easy feat. It's a very hard journal to get accepted to. So first, congr- congratulations. Yeah. Um, Thank you. And so your article, which was published in 2020, is titled Navigating Identity as Controversial Issue. One teacher's disclosure for critical empathetic reasoning. Can you tell us about this this paper and the larger project? Definitely, yeah. So just like you were alluding to, Michael, I think for just about every social studies teacher I've ever talked with, disclosing views about open social political issues is, can be challenging for any thoughtful teacher. I think because yes, there's probably some teachers out there who share their views on anything and everything and are comfortable holding the mantle of indoctrinator in chief, <laughs> but I think very few thoughtful teachers want to, to position themselves that way, right? And so I got into this study having taught, like I was sharing, 
and struggled with how do I, how do I show up and as a woman and as a queer teacher in spaces where it's not just my political views, but it's who I am. It's my social group identities that claim a lack of neutrality for me. So, and then the more I studied social studies education and research and seeing how a balanced or neutral stance for teacher disclosure is still very preferred. That's the, and being a teacher educator and seeing new teachers wrestle with this too, I think brings a different, another layer to it as well. But basically we know through folks like um, Diana Hess and Paula McAvoy's work about the idea of seepage, that there's our views and our understandings of the world seep out. <laughs> a lot of my students would really not like that term, but um, but the idea that we communicate about ourselves, whether we intend to or not, and we communicate about our political views and beliefs. And lots and lots of research has affirmed this, how teachers, even when they're intending to be pre- specifically neutral, usually on political issues, they will use different instructional materials. They're devote, they'll devote different types of time to different perspectives or candidates in a political case. They'll frame issues or they'll insult or not insult different sides in different ways. And so we're just, we're subjective beings. So that's been a challenge as teachers is if we're expected to be neutral, what do we do? Especially in this political, very polarized time, like you were saying. So, and the fear of being able to be open about what you, who you are and what you believe because of who you are, that's a particular challenge today because research has found that since the 2016 election, there's been heightened avoidance and normalization of political trauma and increased identity-based bullying with it. So what we've seen is those neutral stances can really amplify dominant voices and contribute to microaggressions or macroaggressions for marginalized students, which decreases their safety and engagement at schools. So our research is still really learning about how teachers navigate when to disclose and how to disclose ethically with their identities and their positionalities. And that's especially true in terms of sexuality and intersectional identities. Can you, can you share for our listeners that aren't familiar with the terms positionality and intersectionality, what you mean by them? Sure. So like positionality is how the groups that we're, that our identities connect to are positioned in society. So like, for example, as a white middle-class queer non-indigenous person, I have multiple dominant identities, identities that give me privilege and support that I didn't earn. And then identities like being queer and being a woman that are often marginalized so how I experience my identities in schools would be different than say, um, like one of you two, like you were saying earlier, or than someone who has other identities. So because of these different and overlapping identities and sometimes intersectional identities, how teachers navigate what they say and to whom about open political issues that could include like presidential campaign, like you were talking about, or that could include the right to be present in curriculum and how different groups are represented in schools, the right to be safe in schools. So I call this a civic paradox for LGBTQ students and educators or those who are perceived that way because being named or represented as LGBTQ in public spaces like schools leads to experiences of civic illegitimacy. 
for them. So like until last June, teachers could be fired for coming out in 28 states. We know that talking about LGBTQ issues is the most feared civic topic for novice social studies teachers. It's one of the most feared identities for students. It's one of the most difficult topics for heterosexual teachers to address. And unfortunately, LGBTQ topics regularly emerge only as controversial issues in schools, in school curriculum. So I try to talk about them as social political issues or open social political issues, because as the title of my article points to, who gets to be controversial? <laughs> Whose dignity is under question? That's one of the challenges with teaching political issues. So with this research, I wanted to understand how does a teacher navigate this, especially a teacher who identifies as gay or queer and is out with everyone in their school. And so I was interested in how does he make disclosure and instructional decisions about teaching open issues related to his gay or queer identity. And we chose the yearly event called Day of Silence, which is a, it's an event focused on expanding awareness of LGBTQ voices and concerns in schools where participants take a vow of silence to highlight the erasure LGBTQ peoples in schools. And so we were interested in how did he navigate that? And it's pretty surprising. I was really excited to find out <laughs> because <laughs> I'll tell you. So he had 170 students and he offered them the opportunity to participate as well. So he shared that he was going to participate and be silent and facilitate a silent class. Mm -hmm. And then over several discussions with his students that were student led, he still wasn't sure what was gonna happen in advance. So I interviewed him twice before the event and then once right after school on the event in April and then once after that. And that day, so he showed up quite nervous. He showed students a slideshow that included photos of himself as a middle school, as a high schooler and shared that he didn't feel supported in schools and that that was still something that the school he was teaching at currently wasn't addressing and that he wanted to address. And that's why this was his silent protest. And then he showed a slide that said, your silent protest, maybe you feel similarly, maybe you feel sort of similarly, but the issue is different. Maybe you don't feel similar, similarly, but you feel empathy and you'd like to show support. Maybe you don't feel similarly, but you don't mind a quiet class. Maybe this isn't your thing. He really wasn't sure what was going to happen. He, he reported that there were several students who were kind of giving eye rolls up until this point. Um, but in the end, across all five of his classes, all 170 students chose to be silent throughout the 50-minute class period. And in their exit tickets, all but two or three reported it to be personally meaningful. This was very surprising to me as a high school teacher. But what I realized in the conversations we had about planning and about his, his approach with his students and the relationship building that he was able to do is there were four attributes that really supported this. So it wasn't just that he was already out with his students and that they were willing to accept that. It was that he shared a personal counter narrative about the situation that drew attention to lived experiences of inequalities. He emphasized that student-centered discourse across identities throughout his class. He set up a lot of different formats for discussion that were intentionally mixed and where students had intentional leadership in choosing those discussions and approaches. 
and he modeled and maintained strong norms of reciprocity through his disclosure that really emphasized respect and trust for all of his students. And then he, he really primed students to practice what uh, cognitive cross-cultural cognition researchers call holistic reasoning. So instead of individual kind of analytical focused um, thinking, holistic reasoning really focuses on understanding issues through context-specific interrelationships between people and phenomena and emphasizes knowledge gained through experiences. So this, I thought, was a really significant approach to share with other teachers, regardless of their identities, for um, navigating such issues. So you mentioned the, the discussions that took place. Do you know how those discussions took place or, or what, like, was they, or you're talking about, like, uh, paper conversations, like, large-scale paper conversations, or? He had several formats for a discussion. Um, some were written, but the majority were in-person, small group and large group. So he had one weekly class routine of a student-led discussion where stu students in advance would plan and select questions, and he would share questions that they brainstormed across class periods so they could always borrow from the periods that had gone before. And often they were in response to, oh man, all kinds of um, open and locally very relevant social issues. So there was a, a school threat at the, at the time that students were discussing. They were discussing police violence. They would discuss, um, so like very large issues. And then there would also be some community building kind of questions and relationship building questions. And so the students learn to take on different facilitator roles and practice that and practice supporting each other in that as well. So he, he believed that was very important. And I should add, I couldn't go into the classroom because the district wouldn't, <laughs> it's quite ironic, the LGBTQ program coordinator didn't believe at the time that teachers should disclose unless there was a disclose their identity, unless there was a specific benefit for students that could be named. And so she wasn't supportive of this project and then the district wasn't supportive of um, classroom observations. So I'm, so my research is based on what he reported to me. And the exit tickets that you, that the students were. Yes, yeah, so he, he kept the exit tickets and then uh, okay. reported to me. Yeah, well, while I was there watching him read them. Yeah, but I've found out since that several researchers have had the same issue. So the, the problem is we kind of keep this knowledge in the closet because there's so much fear about talking about it. It yeah, sounds feel... like such a powerful experience. Definitely, definitely. And especially as a teacher who was never out with her students until being a teacher educator, it was really powerful for me to hear how powerful it was for Talbot this teacher participant and for his students. Yeah, I checked in with him last week and he has some cool updates that I'll share with you in a little while because it's about the implications of the article. But four years later, he's still very much in touch with these students. I really appreciate, I think when I look over those four attributes of this approach that you talked about, um, there's a lot of trust in the students, right? Because I think if if I feared my students didn't support my identity or my political views even, right? Like I think a natural reaction I would have would be to want to control the situation, right? To not allow them to, to, to talk and speak about it and go on. Um, but this is very much the opposite approach. And I guess I'm, I'm curious too about like, did, 
did he have any other reservations about that? Was that something that, that students are talking in like, for example, small groups or something like he gets nervous about how is this going? And then were there, you know, any downsides to, you know, students who would use that space as Michael was talking about earlier, maybe to bring in hateful things, or did he just see that as this is the place to address this? How, how did he view that? Well, and I wish I could have been there to hear the student conversations too. Obviously that would be different if I were there, but the, what he did share was that regularly in his classrooms, because he was out, he would occasionally have students use it as a lazy insult. He would say like, um, weaponize that identity when they were really upset, but that didn't happen often. And I should say too, this was in a very politically liberal setting and a school where it um, being out was supported as administrators knew. Um, but I think you're getting at more the student discussions. And unfortunately, since I was there, I can't speak to that a lot, but I do know that his, for this teacher, it was very important for him that classrooms the classroom integration happened in a way that supported students from all identities, but it was very important for him particularly to think about building relationships with students whose identities he didn't share. So as a white man, building relationships and supporting particularly students of color. And as someone who had had really personal challenging experiences growing up in a very religious family, it was really important to him as well to help connect with his students who had faith and support them in understanding their faith as a real asset in their identity. So not, not positioning them as having to choose between supporting their faith identity and supporting him as a teacher, for example. So can you tell, like, how did he navigate like the different identities students brought to these discussions? Well, for, for this teacher, he believed meaningful teaching required designing learning environments, particularly discussions as safer spaces. So he said, I think a lot about how to create a space that some people would call safe, not this oasis in a desert safe space, like where everybody feels comfortable saying every little thought that crossed their heart, but the recipe of getting closer to a safe space because there's a lot you can do. And one of the ingredients is putting yourself out there as a teacher. So what he tried to do is think about who is empowered to share what about themselves and what the likely reaction is going to be, especially in this school that's heavily tracked where his is one of a few classes that is untracked, the ninth grade language arts course um, and the 10th grade language arts course. Um, So he knew that safer spaces in his words were necessary for all students to be willing to be vulnerable and courageous when sharing views and experiences and to build that trust between peers and teacher. So what advice do you have for educators who want to create, you know, such a safe space or uh, who are thinking about disclosing identities? Yes. So courage is the biggest reminder I would give teachers because we have to be courageous in our lives today, I think in every, in every way, but also, um, that what Talbot shared and shows me is that his practices of disclosure really promote democratic education more than an ideal of neutrality that leaves these civic inequities unquestioned or perceived as distant and far off. So his ways of sharing himself with his students were real assets rather than liabilities. So I encourage teachers to think about how does this false ideal of neutrality or impartiality with teaching open social political issues 
um, related to identity. How does that show up in your school and what supports are there? Because one thing we haven't really talked about yet is an absence of support or an absence of talking about support for teacher disclosure that's thoughtful about uh, especially identity related issues. And administrators can do a lot to support teachers in thinking through and planning um, instruction that uses and relates to identity related disclosure. So in this argument, I'm making that purposeful disclosure can enhance democratic teaching aims. We, I encourage folks who don't identify as LGBTQ or who have other forms of privilege to think about how you can use that perception of being less self-interested, especially in positions where you have epistemic authority, where you're seen as the teacher, the leader, the teacher, educator, administrator. And when there's, I also encourage teachers when there's opposing arguments that lack evidence. So for example, in Talbot's case, the issue that he opened for students was whether they would participate in the day of silence. And the day of silence itself is kind of an open issue in schools because um, there are some, uh, sorry, that's my kiddo. Uh, There are some challenges with conservative Christian groups claiming that the existence of this silent protest is um, an example of an infringement on First Amendment rights or bullying for Christian students, none of which there is any evidence for. But the point is when those arguments lack evidence, it may be more important to either leave out that absence of evidence or to have, if teachers are in a position of having to share, like if Talbot had been in a position of having to share such arguments, it would be positioning him in a way that's very inconsistent with his own dignity. So teachers, I would argue, should never be in that position And lesson planning practice and modeling with these attributes, which with teacher educators and administrators, the attributes of the model I shared, that can really help teachers weigh the risks and benefits of disclosure and support teachers in deepening their pedagogical judgment. Finally, I would encourage teaching controversial issues and quotes that in ways that promote holistic thinking practices that support students in considering unfamiliar perspectives in a sustained way, especially tied to social inequities, and that more access and support for LGBTQ-related school-based research is urgently needed across contexts like this shows. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you what Talbot says. When I asked him what the implications for educators are, he said, in its typical wisdom, bringing identity and personal values into the classroom thoughtfully and appropriately is worthy. Also, it's healthy to stay open and challenge yourself as an educator with stuff that scares you a little. Be a respectful punk about it. Do what's right, even if the system or institution lags behind a bit. Lastly, those ninth graders are seniors this year, and they're some of the closest relationships and deepest trust I've ever had with students. Some have followed me into different clubs and founded other organizations with me. Some have asked for letters of rec, which is unusual for a ninth grade teacher. My theory is that it's because I challenged them and made myself vulnerable. I think he said it best. That's really good. And I think, you know, thinking of like those, those things we try to aspire to, right, to have courage in schools, it's, it's easy for, for someone like me to say who brings a lot of that in. But it also is the lesson that the, the cowardly lion was supposed to teach us in the Wizard of Oz, right? 
I guess so, yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, what I learned from making this list of attributes is that there's only the first one, the personal counter narrative is identity specific. And for teachers who don't identify as LGBTQ, but want to celebrate the day of silence or want to teach about LGBTQ topics in other ways, it's, um, it's very possible to find those counter narratives through alumni, through other educators, if they want to um, if they can't reach out to folks within their given context, it's very possible to find all kinds of testimonies and supports that can really impact folks in a local way. So I really encourage teachers to think with like, how could I try this? And when typically is the day of silence? It's in April. You know, good question. I didn't look up. I'll put it in the show notes so that people can um, check it out. There's definitely some controversy about it in lots of, ways, especially LGBTQ folks who argue like, hey, why don't we, why do we want to silence ourselves? We already get enough of that. And those, you know, that's a critique that's merited. And this research shows that it was very powerful for Talbot and his students who reported. So that's interesting because the other research I found on Day of Silence is that it's typically been a top-down effort in some private schools and or a lot of bullying and marginalization in heightened ways um, for students who participated in public schools, say through their GSA. Um, so this was a nice antidote to some of the, that, uh, those examples in the research, I think. Well, it seems like another one of the important conversations to have openly and honestly, right? I mean, uh, LGBTQ teachers, like any group, are not going to believe in the, the same thing or think the same approach will work for them. And so it seems like they could use the approach and strategies from your lesson to discuss that you know that very issue so hey that would be great there we go it all comes back so <laughs> well thank you dr jenny conrad so much for sharing your study and being with us today it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me you're welcome and where can our listeners find you or your work online or both mm, they can definitely email me at jconrad at temple.edu Unfortunately, the social media is just too much for me to handle these days, but I admire and appreciate everyone who shares theirs. Yeah, and they, I, I'm on social media too much, everyone knows. So I will just tweet out all of Dr. Conrad's articles and stuff there and then email her all, all your comments back. So I'm um, just kidding. Don't do that. Thank, we, we just really appreciate you again joining us today. And we certainly do hope to continue the conversation online. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you're bored and you want to chat, we are too. Hit us yeah. up. What are we doing? What? Yeah, we have nothing else going on. Can't go anywhere. <laughs> nope. We're at Visions of Ed on Twitter. We're also on Facebook occasionally. And, and this is the exciting part, you have the opportunity to subscribe to Visions of Education podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and literally anywhere you want us to be, we will be there. We're like the um, friends people. Like the we'll friends be there. people are everywhere. Well, they'll be there they'll for be there. you. Like they, that's the theme song for the. It was a show in the nineties. I don't know if that metaphor works or not. And we literally will not be everywhere you want us to be. But if we're talking at opportunities, how about a five star review? That helps the, the, yeah, the, that helps the Apple algorithms 
get our podcast out to more people. So we appreciate it. We would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 4250. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.